from James 4, 7-16. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot in the fourth chapter of James. I know that there are a few of you who have been doing your homework assignment from a month ago, which was to read the book of James, cover to cover, cover to cover, all five pages, every day for like two two weeks. And then if you did that, you would have known that the chapter four is a compressed little chapter of a whole bunch of little housekeeping rules. And, and some negative, you know, don't do this, quit doing that, stop do this, you know. And um, so I couldn't really address it all and I didn't want to. Last week, we spoke about speaking, about the power of speaking and the special way that we do harm in our speaking. And so when I went into chapter four from chapter three, I noticed that the last half of it is talking again about speaking. And so I want to continue in this theme of the power to do good and evil that comes from the word, the spoken word. And in this case, James talks about speech, but now with a theme of humility. And everything I want to say today is in fact a special angle on the question of humility. And that's why I kept in just the little verses before He speaks about speaking here. These ones. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And the two ways that he speaks of humility in the rest of the chapter have to do with how we speak evil of people and our attitudes toward life, especially life heading into the future, our attitude to the future. So I'm going to show you how humility affects speaking evil and our attitude to the future and why these are so important as we try to disciple and become authentic imitations of Christ. So to begin with, The humility 
toward or in the presence of the law of love. Listen to these words again. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. So he's talking about the church, initially within the church community, but obviously outside as well. Don't speak evil one against the other. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another, speaking evil and judging, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, then you're not doing it. But you're sitting as judge over it. Now there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is truly able to save and to destroy. So who are you to play judge over your neighbor? That little passage I want to talk about. What is this speaking evil? What is this word of judgment that we're being warned about? You know, Jesus also said, judge not and you shall not be judged. What was he talking about? Some funny words in English, the word judge. It's probably not the best word to use here. For it is not speaking about the judgment faculty of discernment. Of being able to discern that something is evil. Or discerning that something is good in a person's life. That I may be able to judge and see that what this person has going on in their lives is in fact evil. My capacity to discern that someone is in evil or in good is not judging them in this sense. Neither is it to deny that I have a moral awareness. I have an ability to discern and judge right from wrong, good and evil. We're not being told, well, don't use that. You can't use this ability to judge right and wrong that God gave you. That's not what's being talked about. Nor is it failing to warn a brother or a sister, that they are in danger of evil or sin or temptation. And you come to that brother or sister and you may speak words that point out or that warn that this is a path of wickedness in your life. That's not judgment. How is that speaking evil of the law? That is in fact an understanding and a deployment of the law, is it not? But when you combine the notion of judge judging with the notion of speaking evil, because James brings the two together, don't speak evil, you could say, don't speak evil judging one another. Then the better English word is condemnation, to condemn a fellow human being. Now, do you get the difference between the word judge which is a capacity to discern right and wrong, true and false, from condemnation of another person, to damn another person. Now, beginning in Lent, on, the, on Ash Wednesday, when Lent begins, and I'll tell you about that Ash Wednesday service on March 1st, I'm going to be fasting for six weeks from judging and criticizing Donald Trump. <laughs> you laugh, but I've got a problem this way. And I have friends who tempt me in the same way. I have one particular one who texts me several times a day with the latest headline. And the two of us go far beyond discerning good and evil and find ourselves condemning. So I want to use Trump as an example. 
You can be concerned about Trump. You can be deeply concerned about his presidency. And that's not condemnation. You can find Trump not to your liking. In fact, you might find him distasteful. And I know people who have found him actually disgusting. So to just respond with you, your way, your mannerisms, you disgust me. I'm responding in disgust to what I see and hear come from you. That's not condemnation. You can fear for America. Some people do. Some don't. But some may fear that he is at the helm. And they may say so. Again, that's speaking words of concern. You may even say that you wish that Mr. Trump, you hope for impeachment. You hope that the checks and balances and the wheels of the system which have been made to spit out bad politicians, that he may be impeached. You may feel this would be best for the country, that he be impeached. That's not condemnation. You can even do this. You can, if you're an amateur, maybe if you're a professional. I do it as an amateur. But you may be a professional psychologist, and you may diagnose him. You may say narcissistic personality disorder or a sociopath or a psychopath. And if you were discerning truth here, if you were seeking truth, then you may say, you know what, I think this person is a psychopath. That's not the condemnation that's being spoken about. And every one of the things I just mentioned, a person of honesty and character could say this to Trump's face, could say all these things concerned about you and worried about the country. I think it would actually be best if you lost your position through judicial procedure of uh, perhaps impeachment. Um, you can say these things. But when you cross the line into mockery, mockery of his physical appearance, how he looks, I've seen that, scoffing and ridiculing, misrepresenting and twisting his words and intentions, to cast him in a bad light that you know isn't true, disrespecting, mocking his family, attacking family, and calling him any kind of a name that is subhuman or in any way injures the dignity of the image of God in a fellow human being, you've crossed into condemnation, let alone saying, you're going to hell or I wish you were to go to hell. Anything that crosses into actual, simple hatred of the man, quite apart from his policies or his lack thereof, his ideas or his lack thereof. You can hate the ideas that he might represent or the means to the end that he is choosing. But when we take aim at the person and hate the person and use our words to tear down and harm the person, and wish evil upon him, personally. And now we can stop talking about Trump. We can start talking about our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, or anybody you know. When we are shifting to wishing evil upon them, instead of good, and laugh or revel in evil coming upon them, my people, the Germans, are experts at this. We even have a word, schadenfreude, it's a beautiful word. It means a joy in the misfortune of others. I mean, if you can't enjoy that, what's the purpose of living? I mean, why throw banana peels around and trip people? 
And why have we been given a sense of humor and ability to laugh if we can't laugh at people, especially in their misfortune? <laughs> and now you know why we're so beloved. The problem then of condemnation is cursing. To curse and to wish evil and harm to befall and to blaspheme the dignity and of the human being to dehumanize and to debase and to declare someone rejected of God, hell-bound, hateful. These kinds of words and attitudes toward people, that is the speaking of evil and the speaking in judgment of another that is wickedness here in James and is a, <laughs> at the base, it's a lack of humility. He says, look, if you do that, you're doing two things. You're, you're condemning the law. You're in judgment of the law. Now, I thought, what, what do you mean judgment of the law here? If you think the law is the Ten Commandments and all the many moral laws of the Jewish code, you've been missing everything he's been teaching for three chapters up until now. He's been setting that law aside as not what he's talking about. When he talked about the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of love, He's talking about that golden rule. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love God with all your heart and soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love is the law that sets you free. And when you condemn a fellow human being, you have decided that that law isn't good enough. The law of loving my fellow human being. You're in fact judging that law and saying the law of love doesn't apply in the case of Mr. Trump or whoever else I've zeroed in on. I've decided to judge the law now, and I decide who I get to love, and who I shall condemn. And James is saying, if you do that, you've taken a position above the law, you're judging the law, and you are no longer under it. You are no longer feeling bound by it. And that is spiritual pride. That is boastfulness and pride. And so there is a humility that is required in order to love as we are being called to love. And the negative way of speaking, the opposite of the love is not the hate. The opposite of the love is judgmentalism, because the love is actually grace. And the opposite of grace is to be judgmental and condemning, and to count only the wrongs in a person's life, and deliberately not look at the good that is there in everyone. And he says there is also only one judge. You sit in judgment of the law, but there's only one judge, and that is the lawgiver, and that is God himself. And you're usurping the role of God if you shall act as judge. He said earlier on in chapter 2, he said, live your lives as people who will be judged by God, but by the law of love. Live your lives as someone whose life will be reviewed under the highlight of how did you love? Where and how was love the law of your life? That's what you're judged by. All that moral law stuff, all that, that stuff you were scared of, the, the murder and the lying and the fornication, all that stuff, come on, even if you do it up here. That was all crucified on the cross. That's, 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 that was taken on the cross. The law we're under is the law of love now. So how can you judge that very law by presuming who will receive your love and who will receive your condemnation? So that's his first teaching on a kind of humility. And these are 
These are life perspective humilities. These aren't little hints to start my day. Oh, I'm going to be humble and not talk about Trump in the negative way that I always do. My little card for the day. These are entire life perspective needs to change. So this is long-term discipleship and habit-breaking. To see others as loved by Christ no less than you and therefore deserving of words of grace, even if they need to be truthful. Like, sir, you should be impeached. This would be what I think is best for the country. There's a way to say that and think that without crossing into condemnation and hatred. So a perspective of humility that is cast in how we position ourselves over against others with our words. But then there's something else that I find really interesting. And that is a humility toward, I'd say it's a humility in light of being a mortal. That's what it really is. And the way that you are being humbled by being created mortal is how you talk about the future. How, how you talk about your life with a view to the future. So he says, starting in verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such a town, and then we're going to spend a whole year there doing business and making money. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are just a mist, you're a vapor, you're here for a little while, and then you vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, then we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Wow! I've been trained, raised up by my culture and my family, who are products of the culture, that it is responsible to think about the future and to plan for the future and to save for the future and to provide for the care of others in the future. You cannot plan your life without reference to the past and a sense of planning into the future. It is impossible to live as a human being without the memories and the skills and tasks and the momentum of the past that comes through today and heads into a future that you are rationally deciding about. That's not what he's talking about. He can't possibly be saying, don't, literally don't think about the future. I've heard this thrown in the face of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, where Jesus says, take no thought of tomorrow. Jesus was English in Matthew. Take no thoughts of tomorrow. Don't worry. Look, the flowers, they don't worry. They have beautiful flowers. Look how well clothed they are. You could look like a lily too if you wanted to. Don't worry. God will take care of all things. I've heard that thrown in his face. What? He's asking us to think completely irresponsibly. Just live in the now. He says, don't worry. Don't, don't worry about next year. You know, worry today. There's stuff to worry about today, he goes on to say. There's enough stuff to deal with today. And loving my neighbor can be hard and can, can worry me. And I'll be dealing with it today. There's no sense worrying about what happened last year, right? You can deploy some other emotions, but don't turn worry backwards. But also, don't worry about next year. You may not be here next year. We may not be here next year. There's a certain humility we are being told to have toward the future, toward how we view life as a matter of fact. It is a perspective to the future. 
There's two aspects to it. The first one is this I want to give you. How would today be different for you if you knew it was the last day of your life? Is the last day of your life the most important day you have? Or is it already spoiled? Is it a wrecked day? Is it your worst day? It's been spoiled by knowing that tomorrow I'm gone. And so my last day has been spoiled. Like those moments when you're sitting in a waiting room for the dentist to call your name. (laughs) Or would it be that you know your last day today could be your best, that you may live it more authentically than all the other days that you literally take for granted because ah, there are unending amount of them to live, right? Someone once said, "Our our own death, not death as an abstraction, Our own personal death is one of the few things that we have certain knowledge about. It's going to happen, but we don't believe it. Most stuff we think we know, we actually just believe. We don't know it. We take it on faith and we'll believe it. But that we are going to not be here one day, we know it's true. From the day we first extinguished the first caterpillar we stepped on and snuffed out its life. I keep going back to that moment because I still feel guilty about it. (laughs) And then I rationalized. Oh, we kill them all the time and they wreck our fruit and birds eat them and kill them, so it was okay for me to torture that one to death. I'll answer for that day. But the last day... I think that following Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is 100% about having a new perspective toward your personal death. What is this cross all about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's one simple thing. It's a colossal paradigm shift. I'll give you the one that that captures modernity, or, or the negative worldview, and it's captured best in the most evil of all philosophers, Martin Heidegger. Another German? Martin Heidegger says all of life, you come from nothing, and you find yourself in life, and life is just heading to death. That's all it is. It has no ultimate meaning, because the death we're going to face, the grave we're heading to, negates all possible meaningfulness in this life. So you got two bookends. The nothing before you existed and the big nothing after and then life in between. Okay? That's the old view. That's the view that fears death. Jesus shifts all the markers with the resurrection. He shifts it this way. He says, there, there is no before your existence. You just find yourself alive. It's an abstraction. Where was I before? There is life And then there is resurrection and eternal life. And in between is an event called death that I have defanged and taken the fear out of and taken the sting out of. And it is a transition and I've made it graduation day and I've made it a passageway like being born was a passageway. And there is only life. And within life is an event and a transition called the losing this body and the moving on to the rest of life. That's what Jesus has done. He has bookended death between two lives. This life and the life of the world to come. And shrunken death down. 
So nothing more than actually a beautiful natural passage into the next stage of our existence. And that is how we are to think of today. My life today is connected to a life that God provides for me. Because the way we think about time and life and the future, when we say, oh, I'm going to do this next year, and in 10 years I plan to do this, that is the illusion of control, control, power over your life. Control, like, I intend to be healthy. I intend other people to be killed in car accidents, not me. I just don't plan that. I'm not going to be diagnosed with a fatal disease. I ha- that's not in my date book into the future. Because I have a false, completely false sense of control. Why? Because the modern world, this is a modern disease. This is a very recent disease. No more than two centuries and probably less. People thought differently in the past. But we have an illusion. Science, the most boastful, proudful human activity ever in human history. And then it's a little child, technology. And oh, technology gives us the control. We can now change nature and even change ourselves. What power, power and control. I love power and control. And then radical politics. Oh, just the social construction of reality. The most stupid, inane, idiot doctrine on earth. The social construction of reality. Let's, okay, let's just not construct death, suffering and pain into my life. Don't construct that. Okay, I'm not planning that. That's not going to be part of my future. So politics, humanist politics, Science and technology gives us this illusion that we have power and control. And Jesus said, and even if you did and could gain the whole world with your power and your control and in the process lose your soul, lose your heart, become a wicked person, what have you gained? If you, lose, if you gain the whole world and then die and meet your maker... You've lost the whole world again. What was that all about? It's a waste of energy and time. So, how do you live today, then? And how do we use the gifts God gave us of reason and language and thinking that even gave us science when we face this fact that we've only got today? And if we have any control, we have a little bit. It's about today. And James is saying, you can't even control your mouth. See, I just spat. (laughs) and that's an activity of the mouth it's unkind but it is you say you have control I'll tell you as control the one who control control what they say are the ones who are in control who have some control of their lives and are the most spiritually in control is what do you say how do you use the mouth the word the power of the word James calls it boastfulness you boast when you plan into the future. And our whole culture has a habit of thinking and speaking about control into the future. And so James says, it's not that you can't plan into the future. He's not saying don't do that. But he adds this little phrase. Say something like, God willing, God willing will will get our Amway downline to make us a fortune by next year. You have to be really old to know what Amway means. It was from another era. (laughs) Next year, our Ponzi scheme will really pay off. Okay, Okay, look up Ponzi. Okay, 
God willing. It is not inshallah of Islam. It's not the fatalism of Islam at all. It's not that doctrine. It's simply deference to higher plans. Deference to the fact that we don't have control. There is a bigger picture. There is something bigger and higher going on in the universe. And sometimes it interrupts my life plans. You know, I always think about what war does to all the little plans of human beings. You can, I, used, I think of Sarajevo. That's a particular war that got to my heart. Because Sarajevo was a city that was actually almost half Christian, half Muslim. And it was one of the most peaceful, happy cities. The Olympics were there. Was it the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo? Anyway, when the Civil War of Yugoslavia tore Sarajevo apart, there's a very famous couple who were shot dead by snipers in the streets. And one was a Muslim and one was a Christian. And they were lovers. And they were embracing in the middle of battle and they were shot dead. And they were called the Romeo and Juliet of Sarajevo. And it was one of these cities not quite as brutally beaten up as... Uh, Aleppo, and not as long time brutalized as Beirut was, but it was a beautiful jewel in Europe that was destroyed, smashed to pieces by civil war. And when that happens, whatever the bigger, the bigger narratives that led powers to fight over that part of the world, those big powers, there may have been wise political decisions. There would have been big picture moral decisions that were being fought out in that war. But on the day-to-day -day level of the city dwellers, there were weddings that never happened, and babies that were killed after they were born, and schools that were destroyed, and lives that were destroyed, and all the million plans of little business deals, and little music moments, and little times of worship, and lovemaking, and friendship. All the little plans smashed to pieces by big plans rolling through. And then there are plans above those as well in the complexities of this world and in the complexities of who knows what's going on in the universe, on other planets and in other dimensions. We're told there's things like angels out there and that even they deal with conflict and with the problem of good and evil. And the old truism, you know, when elephants fight, the, the grass gets trampled. That's trying to capture that the lives of little people and the little plans that make our daily life sweet get stomped on by the big plans. And some of those are plans we unleashed in politics, in economics. And we're taught to believe this, that that hierarchy of organization, there's a method to the apparent madness, that God is in control, even though it looks like it's not. And that he is pulling us toward what is called the resolution of these things in the kingdom of heaven. But in the short term, it means that I can be living in love and living in the will of God and be struck down tomorrow unjustly or meaninglessly. And we have to just give up to the big picture we don't see from the mountaintop. We don't have the viewpoint of the big picture. So we can't say it was unjust, it was unfair, it wasn't right. Or stupidly, we can't say it's all meaningless, it makes no sense. Yeah, to you. Because we're just in the valley, we're just the grass and the elephants are fighting. And so we say, we have a humility, we have a humility to the complexity of life laterally and I'm saying interdimensionally. There's more going on in this universe than we know about. And the problem of evil isn't just limited to our viewpoint and our planet even. 
So the humility toward the future affects how I love people today. That's why I'm saying, what would your life be like if today was the last day? How would you think about religion? For instance, I think if this was my last day, would I spend it in church? (laughs) I'm telling you, the odds of that are vanishingly small. And I don't think that God God would say, no, not that. That's another one of those other human constructs. You running to church? I wanted to spend time with you. And there you were in the church. Uh, I wanted you to love me the only way I ever gave you to love me and that's by loving others around you by loving my reflection in the image of people around you and you went off to do the rosary 17 times in a corner Okay, it's a, your religion is a nervous habit he would say to me you're twitching in the corner instead of loving me today but if this was your last day if this was your last day What would you need to say to somebody? He's talking about speech for two chapters and saying we don't even understand what it is and misuse it. It's the thing that most makes you like God. It's the thing that most is the image of God in you that you can speak and express your feelings and your thoughts in revelation through words and instead you curse with it. If you had only one day today, how would it affect what you say? To whom do you need to write a letter? To whom do you need to make a phone call? Which of your possessions would you get rid of first? I always think about this, so that's easy. As long as I got to use them selfishly up to my last day, I don't mind giving them away then. I'm going to lose them anyway, so now I can give them away. Oh, that's so kind of you. Really? That's so valuable. You're giving me your whole house? That's so great. And you think, I'm blown away. He gave me his whole house. Well, you do know he's going to die tomorrow. Oh, what a cheapskate. (laughs) Should have given it to me last year. (laughs) I plan ahead and into the future. On my last day, I'm going to give away all my stuff. Because that would build my ego. It's terrible afterwards to have people tear apart your stuff and divide it up when you're not even there anymore. Control the dispersal, and then your ego can be fed. Okay, I'm just sharing instant darkness a la Rob. So again, if it's your last day, if it's your last day, here's James again, then live as those who will give account according to the law of love. That means this. What can you take with you? If you're going to lose your time, you don't have control of that, All the physical stuff, including your body, you can't take that with you. What can you take? You know the answer. You know the answer. You can only take this, you can only take the personal history of what was your life. The story of your life. The record of your life. That goes with you. And when that gets examined, it gets examined under the law of love. So, your deeds of compassion, your thoughts of kindness. You, when you didn't even have time to pray and didn't think or know to pray, but felt a broken heart for someone else. That was your prayer. That's revealed as a moment of love. 
and all the good and sweet and tender, beautiful things you feel through your broken heart is rewarded and revealed as the preciousness of your life. It is in the relationships, not the selfishness, of your friendships and your family and your loves and your kind memories and the sins that you forgave in others and the private victories over your addictions and even the grace you gave yourself over the ones you couldn't overcome. Those are the things you take with you. And those are the things that are your reward. Your reward is the love you receive back from all those you gave love to. All of them are your reward in the true future that is coming, about which you have no control, that is the gift of God called the life of the world to come, purchased for you on the cross by the love of God through Jesus Christ. So, James is saying, humble yourself. Don't talk in judgment and hate to others. And remember, this day you have, and that's all you have. And to use what you've been given in this day to love your neighbor as Christ loved you. Amen.